audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. All right. We, we like, and I don't know if we've been programmed this way by the media more recently, but, but we like highlights. It can be anything from, from a weather phenomenon. I mean, it's that kind of time of year, guys. I mean, I have a fascination with it. It's somewhat of a fearful fascination, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Um, we start thinking about those. I've never even seen one in my life. Well, I kind of saw one once upon a time, but that was years ago. But tornado, you know, and, and but when I go to YouTube and I want to watch, I want to watch tornado, I don't want to watch the, the two, three-hour buildup to where it gets to the point that the funnel cloud pops out of that wall cloud and hits the ground. I want to see it hitting the ground. That's what I want to see, and I want to see it from the viewpoint of some insane storm chaser trying to get close enough so they can make a lot of money with the video, but not too close, you know what I mean? We like, we like the highlights. It's all about a visual, or at least details. At least details. Guys, before we jump into chapter 3, take a look at verse 43 of chapter 2. Because we get a little glimpse of something that now Luke is going to open up for us in more detail. The author of the book of Acts. He was a doctor. His name was Luke. And this is what it says. In verse 43 of chapter 2, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Today, we get the details about one of those wonders and signs, those mighty works of God. And Luke picked out a very, very public one to show us. All right? Um, The work and the message of the apostles, what we looked at the last time we were together in the book of Acts a couple of weeks ago, Um, We looked in Acts chapter 2 that the very first time that the gospel was preached, once again, the gospel, it is a profound yet not complex definition. Jesus came into this world, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he arose. And now he's seated at the right hand of God, place of power over everything, okay? And, And that event taking place in the history of our world changed everything and it has the potential to change people as well. So the gospel was preached for the very first time. 3,000 people responded to that message. 3,000, okay? And when you get to the end of chapter 2, again, that verse 43 tells us that the apostles as well as the other believers were still at work. And the Holy Spirit was working through them, as I told you. That Acts of the Apostles could be changed. The, the title of this book could be very easily changed to the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit who is working through the Apostles. And when you wrap up chapter 2 of Acts, it says this. The Lord was adding to their number day by day. You know, there's something about seeing something with your own eyes. Not seeing necessarily even just the highlights, but seeing it with your own eyes. I want you to use your imagination just here for a moment, okay? Now, for some of you, that'll be very easy. For others, it's not so easy, okay? So so broaden your horizons just a little bit and use your mind's eye. And I want you to imagine yourself being at a very, very large sporting event. At most of these sporting events, if you've been to one somewhat recently, where they have, whether you're at a, you're at an arena, where there is a court or whether you're at a stadium where there is a field. Um, most days, most, time, most of those times, these days, you have a special section somewhere close to the court of the field that is put there for pay- people who have a physical handicap. 
okay? And um, so they are put in a place where they can get there and they can see the event up close and personal. Now, let's just imagine in your, in your mind's eye that somehow or another, you ended up pretty close to the action as well. Like, you're, you're pretty close to those expensive tickets, you know what I'm saying? So you're there as well. You're watching the game. It gets to halftime, and let me tell you something. You're cheering for the home team. Mm, not going very good. Okay, I'm a KU football fan. I understand that completely. Okay, so it's not going all that well. They come out from halftime, and a young man, say around 30 years old, he's not 40 yet, so he's still young, okay? And, and he gets up out of his wheelchair, stands up, walks out on, we'll leave the football field out of it for this because then you'd have to put on equipment and helmet and all that stuff. Let's just make it the basketball court. Goes out there on the court and not only begins to participate but begins to compete and then begins to dominate. Okay, now, now, now in your mind's eye, also imagine this. You happen to know this individual and this individual has not taken one step since he came into this world. And I'm telling you, if you ever witness something like that, You're not going to believe it unless you saw it with your own eyes. Let's take a look at chapter 3 and let's see what happens. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along. Whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple which is called Beautiful in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Now, the court, the temple, I should say, the temple of the Jews was destroyed in AD 70, and it was never rebuilt, okay? So, when you start talking about some of the locations within that temple, there is a little bit of speculation that comes into play. There are ruins, but it's no longer there. So, when we're talking about this gate called Beautiful, I go with with one of the more likely, if you will, scenarios. This is basically where I'm going to describe it to you. Now, a lot of this isn't likely. It is real, because there's a lot about that temple that is still known. When you went to that temple, the first place you would come to would be the court of the Gentiles. The original temple was so big. And let me tell you, the temple precincts was big, okay? We're talking talking several city blocks. We're talking about a big area here, okay? So when you went into the court of the Gentiles, that portion of the temple had been added onto by King Herod. So it wasn't, if you will, sacred. They call it the court of the Gentiles. And if you were a Gentile, not Jew, you were a Gentile, that's as far as you went when it came to the temple. There were nine gates that you could go in to get into that next wall or barrier to get into the next level of the temple. And above every one of those gates written in both Latin and Greek, you would see these words. Gentiles are not permitted beyond this wall on pain of death. Okay, so you understand they mean business here. Okay, so that is the court of the Gentiles. Following that, you have the court of women. And if you're a Jewish woman, you could enter into that court. The next court was the court of Israel. Jewish men were allowed to go into that court. The next court was called the court of priests. And if, unless you were a part of the tribe of Levi, a priest, you did not go beyond that court. 
Now, the gate, beautiful, and it was so called this because even though it was made of bronze and some of the gates were made of silver or even gold, but this was the one called the beautiful gate. It was made of Corinthian bronze, and let me tell you something, the craftsmanship in it was amazing. It's written about by Josephus, by other historians. It was well known. And many believe that that was one of the doors going from the court of the Gentiles into the court of women. And it was at this gate that we have our lame beggar setting up shop. And there's probably a reason for this. He's, he's amongst the temple per se. He's in the area where the largest group of people could be there. And we know this for certain. The treasury was located in the court of women. So not only is he in an area where the most people are, but they got money on him, okay? Because they're going in to give their offering. So this is where he set up shop. Now, he was completely dependent. The guy had been, I mean, Dr. Luke lets us know that he was lame from birth. So he has to be carried each and every day that he begs to this place and put there. And this is where he would beg for money. Peter and John are going into the temple to pray. Now they are going beyond this point to go into the more inner parts of the temple because they are Jewish men. And they would go in there, this was the hour of afternoon prayer around 3 p.m. Now there were also a time of prayer right about early morning, shortly after daybreak, one towards the evening. The first two they would also offer a sacrifice. Now Peter and John don't have anything to do with that sacrifice anymore because Jesus took care of all that. But they're still going to pray. So they are going there to pray, and our beggar calls out to them, seeing them, thinking, okay, these guys probably got some money on them, okay? So he calls out to receive money from them. Here's the issue. They're broke, okay? Usually that's not the best, that's not the best scenario for our beggar, but it's going to go a little differently today than what has happened in the past. Let's look at verses 4 through 10, Acts chapter 3. Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him, the lame man, and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So Peter tells this man, in the name of Jesus, walk. And then Peter, reaching out in faith, grabs a hold of him and lifts him to his feet. And guys, Luke makes it clear immediately his ankles, his legs, everything about these. I mean, just think for a moment. This is a full-grown man who had never used his legs before. Do we understand this? I know we've got several out there who work in physical therapy. What are those legs going to be like? Atrophied? There's basically nothing but skin and bone there. The muscle that is there, it's useless. And this man not only has the strength to do this, but moms, how long did it take that? Even that really, really fast working little kiddo of yours to walk, you know, okay? This guy's never taken a step in his life. And he jumps to his feet, and he's running around like this strange combination between Hussein, Hussein Bolt and Michael Jordan, all right? 
And this is the thing about it. This is is a fulfillment of what is spoken in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 35 talks about this, says, when Zion, when the Lord remakes Zion, he says, the lame will run like deer. I've always kind of liked that passage of scripture. (laughs) And it's being fulfilled at this moment. And this fella is running. I mean, he's literally running and jumping, praising God. Now, I don't think he's doing this quietly. Catches a little attention. Let's continue on. Verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You know, it's, it's interesting what takes place next. You see, with the followers, the early followers of Jesus, and even more specifically the apostles, for them, as we will see next week, it's never not a good time to talk about Jesus. (laughs) They're always ready to talk about Jesus. Look, Look at verses 11 and 12. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? Let me tell you something, guys. What we find in the book of Acts written here, and not only that, but the entire trajectory of the church, and whether or not we would even possibly be here today, would change completely if, the, if Peter and John and the rest of the apostles were into self-promotion. <laughs> I mean, they just made this guy, they, walk, never taken a step in his life. People are looking at them and just say, hey, hey. You ever seen something like that before? Yeah, we're pretty handy, pretty handy fellas. I mean, if they had grabbed a hold of that, put a little ownership into it, think about how everything might have changed. The message would no longer have been about Jesus. It would have been about who? His followers. But the message is always about Jesus. And when it came to the apostles, the credit always always went to God. Now, this man was not going to let Peter and John get away easily, okay? It says he was clinging to them. The picture painted in the Greek is like Velcro, okay? Like he's not letting go of these guys. As we will see next week when we see some more reaction to this miracle taking place in chapter 4, he's still around then too. And the things were a little bit more difficult in that moment in time for John and Peter. So, the light is shining brightly. It's like, hey, we're open for business, all right? The wonder has taken place. There, the, it, now is, it's time to preach. And, and Peter and John, they're like, there is a lot more to this story, folks, than this guy jumping around like a deer right now, all right? So let's see what he has to say. He's just told the people, it's not our power that has made this man walk. And then he goes on in verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer 
to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. All right, Peter and John here, um, they're using the right lingo. They're using the right words. This is Jewish language. Peter immediately goes to the God of the fathers, okay? And following that, Peter, as well as the rest of the apostles and followers of Jesus, consistently in these early days will use the same formula again and again when it comes to preaching the gospel. They will contrast the way man treated Jesus and the way God treats Jesus. And he will lay before them the ultimate paradox here, okay, when it came to the way man treated Jesus. There's something here. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. The New American Standard doesn't do the best job in the world of, of translating this Greek word. It's not one that's used very often in the New Testament, four times. And each time it's used in reference to Jesus, okay? But here's the thing. The New American Standard uses the word prince. Probably should have gone a different direction. Matter of fact, my Bible has some subnotes to it, and it says, or it could mean something else. I wish that's the one they had primarily chosen because the other definition from the Greek is this, author or source. You see the difference there? The prince of life, you killed him, or this, the author of life, the source of life. You kill. Do you see the paradox here? Peter is saying this. You put the very author of life to death. It's through him that you're even alive. And you killed him. He says, you killed him and God raised him. You see, that's what they would do so often. My goodness, they're going to do it again next week. It's going to be a doozy next week, chapter 4. Buckle your seatbelts, okay? All right. You killed him, God raised him. And and don't, don't, don't fly right on past what the rest of verse 15 says. When it says here, very, very specifically, Peter and John, they say, we're eyewitnesses to this. We've seen him. He's alive. You can bank on it. Brothers and sisters, to this day, one of the very greatest pieces of evidence we have to plant our flag of faith when our faith is attacked by the world is in this. People saw him alive. So Peter tells this crowd, he says, look, we saw him alive. We saw him. And then Peter turns to the other guy standing up there with him, this guy that we never get his name, the one that's hopping around like a deer. And he says this, we saw him, Jesus, alive. And this fellow standing here next to us that you've known for a long time, that you've known that he has had no use of the lower portion of his body, this man has been healed because Jesus has not only been raised, but God has glorified him. When it comes to authority, he's at the top. I'm really, really glad 
what Peter does next. Look, look at verse 16. He makes something really clear that could have been a misunderstanding. Look at this. Peter continues on. He says, on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And what Peter is making very, very, very clear here is, look, this has nothing to do with my buddy John or me. We're just people. It's Christ who healed this man. And then he makes it even more clear. And this is no mere magical formula. You can't just be throwing the name of Jesus around and things start happening. All right? Oh, my goodness. Wait till we get to Acts chapter 19. Seven fellows, seven sons of a certain man named Sceva who tried to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus. This is their formula. We cast out you, demon, by that Jesus guy that Paul preaches about. <laughs> Let me tell you something. It did not end well for those seven dudes. Okay, We'll get there after a while. This is not some magic formula of the name of Jesus. Peter makes it so very clear that it is faith in the name of Jesus that is front and center in this healing. If this lame man had not responded in faith, and understand that for just a moment. The guy's looking for money. That's all he has ever asked for. He's never gone anywhere beyond that, okay? He's asking for money. And this crazy dude with this other crazy dude beside him looks at him and says, get up and walk. Like, are you? That's a bad joke. And then he reaches out his hand to lift him up. What's the guy do? He could have just sat there and said, you're crazy. Get on out of here. No, he reached up. He grabbed a hold of that hand and he was lifted. If this lame man had not responded in faith, no healing would have taken place. But once he did respond in faith, Christ took over through the Holy Spirit. And my goodness, look what happened. Verses 17 and 18. Peter's going to get with it now. He says, and now, brothers, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. I mean, Peter does bring up the fact that Jesus on that cross, that was God's plan all along. God was behind it all along. And it was not only them who were used, if you will, by God through this. It was the rulers as well. And he says, I know that you acted in ignorance. If you had known who that was you're putting on the cross, I don't think you would have done it. But he's not giving them a free pass here. Just because God was working behind the scenes doesn't mean those who shouted crucify him get a free pass. They're still accountable. Look what happens next. Now, we're going to look at this verse a number of times before we wrap up today. If, 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 you're, if you are a writer in your Bible, underline verse 19. Because it is key to what this event is all about. 
Peter looks at him and he, he says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He tells this crowd, he says, change your attitude about Christ. Bring it in line with God's. God the Father has clearly shown where he stands when it comes to Jesus. What did God do with him after the cross? He raised him to life. Let's wrap this up. And in order to get the full effect of what Peter is saying to these people, we must look at verse 19 again. So let's read verse 19 through the remainder of this chapter. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So basically what Peter's getting at is he came, he's coming again, and you better be ready for it. So he continues, verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise, you, will raise up for you a prophet like from me, from your brethren, to him You shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward, it was announced, also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. There's a tremendous amount of of Jewish prophetic talk here. He brings up Abraham, and yes, that's Father Abraham, okay? He brings up Samuel, and it was Samuel who was the prophet who put in place at the bidding of God the line of David. King David, through whom Jesus on his earthly side would come. And then you, you just move on through this, and then he, he brings up like the superpower when it comes to prophets in the Old Testament, all right? Like the superhero prophet, Moses, okay? The guy that talked to God face to face. We're talking about Moses here. And he says, every one of them spoke about Jesus. Peter and John knew their audience very well. This was a Jewish crowd. They knew what the prophets had said. To us, it sounds a little, maybe just a little foreign. It probably shouldn't, but it does kind of. Most of us aren't Jewish people. We are connected to Father Abraham, but our connection comes through a Jew, and that Jew's name is Jesus. Okay, So when I read about that prophetic talk, it's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's more evidence that Jesus is who he said he was. But out of this conclusion to this sermon, you know what jumps out to me more than all of that? Well, and guess what? It comes out of verse 19 again. I said you were just going to leave verse 19 alone, okay? So let's go back to it one more time. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing 
may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, New American Standard uses the word refreshing, times of refreshing. Perhaps your version uses a different word there. There's probably a reason for that. This word is extremely rare in the Greek language. Incredibly rare. The, the question for me is, why did, why did Peter use that word? He would never use that particular word again in any of his messages. I don't think Paul used it either. Why at this moment in time did the Holy Spirit work through Peter to use this word refreshing? In the Greek, it is anapsixis. It's a word in Greek. You know what it means? It means a recovery of breath. A recovery of breath. Okay. I'm looking around. I'm looking right now to see if there's any crazy people in here. Okay. I'm going to define crazy. People who run marathons. Crazy. Okay. And there might be a few of you in here. And I mean, it, you might be crazy good, okay? To me, you're just crazy. I don't know why anybody would ever want to do anything like that. Our daughter last year, she took a break this year because she's not crazy, but she, she, ran, she ran the 400, you know, last year quite a bit. And she's pretty good at it, all right? And I love watching her run that thing, but I watched all these kids run the 400. The 400 is a 400 yard sprint, people. 400 yard sprint. You know what I'm talking about, don't you, George? Yeah, it's a 400-yard sprint. You don't stop, you don't pace, you cruise, you go. You book it, all right? And they get across the finish line, and it's like, <gasps> I mean, I saw them hit the ground, you know? I saw them reaching for the sky, not because they won. They're just like, <gasps> trying to get those lungs filled, trying to recover. You know what? I don't think that's what Peter's talking about here. Recovery breath what did Peter just tell this crowd as well as many other crowds in that day and that time that man that you killed he is the Lord of Lords the King of Kings he lives and he reigns you talk about a message that take your breath away. Put yourself in the sandals of some of those people, imagining weeks earlier shouting, crucify him. Imagine asking that Barabbas, a murderer, be set free so that this Jesus can die. And then imagine two fellas showing up weeks later, claiming by the power of faith in Jesus Christ, this lame man is running and leaping, jumping like Michael Jordan. And he says, it's by the power 
of faith in that risen name of Jesus Christ that this man has been healed. You remember that guy you killed? Yeah, you imagine the message taking your breath away. The way it's described in Acts 2.37 is this. The people were cut to the heart. It's a violent picture in the Greek. What do we do? Peter's response is this. You want to breathe again? You change your perspective when it comes to Jesus. Once again, we must, brothers and sisters, listen to me closely here. I'm talking to you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. If, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm going to talk to you here in a few minutes. But if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have turned your life over to him, you've been washed clean by his blood, you have confessed, repented, you've believed it got the whole thing started, and you've been buried and raised brand new a watery grave. You are a follower of Jesus. If that is you, we cannot let our familiarity with the gospel rob us of the awareness of its saving power. Do you understand what I'm saying here? We were doomed without Jesus. Perhaps we weren't the ones shouting crucify him, but brother, sister, it is your sin that put him on the cross. It's the sin that you have committed since you made him your Lord and Savior that put him on the cross because his blood reaches forward as well as backward. The author of Hebrews has some pretty harsh language about some of that. Do we continue sinning willfully and once again put him on the cross? We cannot let the fact that we know about the gospel rob us from the awareness that without Jesus we've got nothing but hell awaiting us. We breathe because of Christ. You want doomed defined is, okay? I'm going to define it here. Now, don't go to Webster's because it's not going to be there, all right? But I'm going to tell you what doomed in this context means. It means this. It means helpless in the face of God's almighty wrath. Without the blood of Jesus, people of this world are facing the wrath of God. 